Welcome to this, the third episode in the 10-part series, the IPA's Great Books of Literature podcast. My name is John Roskam, and I'm the Executive Director of the Institute of Public Affairs. In this series, Andrew Bolt and I talk about 10 of the great books of literature with our compere James Bolt, the host of the IPA's Young IPA podcast. In our first two episodes, Andrew and I talked about Bleak House by Charles Dickens and The Leopard by Giuseppe Tomasi de Lampedusa. In this, our third episode, we discuss Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte, one of my personal favourite books. It is not only the classic story of Catherine and Heathcliff, it is also a statement about individualism and about the conflict between romanticism and rationality. In episode four, we'll be talking about Zorba the Greek by Nikos Kazantzakis. If you like this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and leave a rating. I'll now hand over to James Bolt. Wuthering Heights was written by Emily Bronte and published in 1847. The plot centres around the doomed relationship of its two main characters, Heathcliff, the adopted son of a wealthy landowner, Mr Earnshaw, and Earnshaw's daughter, Catherine. It is a tale of love and obsession, and it is often violent. Emily Bronte presents a picture of a series of relationships seemingly all destined to end in destruction. Often described as a gothic-like novel, it examines both the romantic attachment of young lovers and the reasoned order of the other family members. The final scene of the narrator contemplating the graves of Catherine and Heathcliff is one of the most famous in world literature. Uh, so, John's already at his iPhone. I know he wanted to do one thing before we got into it. James, before we do anything else, I'm going to try a stunt. I'm going to give you my iPhone for you to plug into the jack and we're going to see whether this works because this is going to be an entire multimedia production. Okay, that was uh, Wuthering Heights by Kate Bush. Thank you, John. So that is we the book that we are... We just needed to play that so much. When I was 10, I loved the song. I had no idea what it was about. I loved Kate Bush. And now, 50 or 30 years on, I uh, know the meaning of the song and the meaning of the book. And even better, Kate Bush is a Tory. <laughs> I was wondering where, where she fitted in onto this. Okay, very cool. So, yeah, that is the book that we're going to be discussing today, Wuthering Heights by Kate Bush. Uh, uh, oh, I didn't even realise I did that. So, Wuthering Heights by Ka- uh, Emily Bronte. Um, we can talk about the song. We can, it is know, a great song. We'll Emily come, Bronte. We'll come back to the song. The <laughs> Emily Bronte. I mean, this is – there was no hesitation between you and me uh, from either of us, John, when uh, – We agreed I think you automatically. Yeah, uh, this book – had to go in the top 10, which is amazing because it's a book by a 29-year-old woman who had met virtually nobody and sitting in the the middle of the Yorkshire Moors, um, reserved person, and bang, she produces one work. And in the year that it came out, she died. So she died at 30. And it is a brilliant tale of revenge and love and immediately, or even though the critics initially were absolutely horrified, called it, you know, disgusting, disgraceful, even her own sister, the famous novelist Charlotte Bronte, there were three novelists in the family, said that even doubted whether a character like Heathcliff should have even been invented. She said, uh, you know, I, I doubt whether it should. And yet it, it has captivated people for so long. The power in the book is just astonishing. 
it's so powerful. And I've spent the last few weeks thinking exactly as you said, Andrew, why is it that we didn't negotiate, we didn't debate about this book and there were others that you convinced me of and, and uh, but this one, uh, for me, it's probably top three, maybe even top one or top two and I've been pondering what is it? It's violent, it's romantic, it's it's gothic, it's powerful but at the same time it's completely exaggerated it's got a you know a couple of psychotic main characters i would hope no one lives like this but it changes lives i read read it when i was in my 20s um i thought it was pretty good uh rereading it for this series it's even better it's like completely awesome uh you can't put it down uh you're cringing as there are knives being thrown, as there are threats being made, as there are people running through the moors. It's just fantastic. And, you know, and for me, a large part of it is, of course, the backstory of, of Emily and, and Charlotte and the family. Yeah, I think the central thing is the, this thing of love that we'll talk about later, the, a, a, a presentation of an overwhelming sort of love that I think intoxicates readers maybe even female readers in particular it's funny two men talking about it like this. yeah <laughs> i know i know i feel like we should have dragged in a third party uh, um uh, one woman i know who loves it too but um but we'll it, talk it, about the love in a sec but uh, let's first but, talk but about just the on miracle that it transcends everything i mean a, a couple of people said to me well when we talked about this are you going to have uh women authors and i said well we're not picking anyone by their race or gender but by the way uh emily's at the top of the list and it speaks to Everyone, regardless of their age. All right, we'll get onto that love bit because I think that is that is the central attraction for many readers to uh, the book, which is why films have been made with uh, Laurence Olivier as Heathcliff and all that. Happy Heathcliff, Kathy. songs have been made exactly. But uh, let's talk about the miracle of its creation. So here we get Emily Bronte, right? So she is the fifth of six children, all born very closely together, uh, to an Irish clergyman. He'd been born in poverty and then went to Cambridge, I think it was, became a clergyman, Church of England. Got a first, I think, very bright. Very bright man. Uh, takes the family to this uh, mill town in, in Yorkshire and uh, Hayworth and he, and uh, the, his wife dies. I think this is, I mean, it's a, it's a family history littered with tragedies and death, which is, death is absolutely... So many characters in Wuthering Heights die early that you think this is an exaggeration. Everyone's got consumption or dies. And, but when you look at the, the Emily Bronte's own life, where the She catches eldest, pneumonia going to her brother's funeral. <laughs> the eldest of the six children, the, 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 the child that survived longest is Charlotte. And she died at what, uh, not, she didn't even make 40. And... Emily uh, went, the first of the tragedies in her family were the mother dying when she was just three. Of, of a long and painful cancer in the Uterine family. Uterine cancer, yeah. The yep. family are all there over the month seeing their mother die. A very painful death. Uh, at six, she's sent to a brutal school, uh, sent away to join uh, a couple of her sisters, several of her sisters, a boarding school for daughters of the clergy. Really harsh school. You know, Dickens mocked that kind of school later, and so did her own sister. Dickens times in, ten, isn't it? Hey? It's terrible. That the school, by all the descriptions, the school was just terrible. Uh, well, well, I tell you, I, I found a statistic that I thought just told. It was run by clergymen for clergymen's daughters, with that sort of harsh Christianity that was so was popular at the time. You know, really gothic Christianity. 
where the children had to walk on Sundays through snow or whatever, to, uh, miles to the church, uh, wet, sit around because it was too far, sit around on, and, and then wait for the evening service and then march all the way back. And then they all die of typhoid and people think, oh, gee, how did that happen? Well, here's <laughs> the amazing statistic. 53 pupils were at that school at that time. Seven of them died. Mm. One there and six of illness uh, after being sent home. And two of them included her elder sisters, Maria and Elizabeth. So they were 10 and 11 when they died. So this is through her family. This is just amazing. Before she's 10. <laughs> yeah, before she's 10. So people wonder, you know, what about this gothic vision you've got? Uh, hello, this is sort of background, plus other things we'll talk about later. And where they live is, of course, uh, a Jutz, a graveyard. Uh, that's true too. I hadn't picked that up. You're, you're absolutely correct. Um, and she's getting. Then her aunt comes, and she, her aunt is a very strong believer. Comes to look after the children. She tells them lots of biblical, you know, again for this really harsh, you know, repent or whatever. Um, it's a very Old Testament Christianity. It's very hardcore. There's not a lot of God and love in in the Bronte family at the beginning, and or in the book. By or the way, or in the book, the book is is there's very little Christianity in the book. In fact. Um, uh, at one stage, uh, of course, her the great hero, Kathy, says she'd rather be kicked out of heaven That's right, and yeah. find uh, love on earth. Uh, I find, found that amazing. Uh, but anyway, so this miracle. So she's a very introverted girl. She does go away to school again later. I think uh, much later she tries again, but it's only there for, what, half a year, not even. Has three to come months. back from homesickness. Homesickness. So Charlotte which says. Is a, which is a theme. Yeah, and, in her and life. she says, if she doesn't come home, she'll die of homesickness. And I don't think Charlotte was joking either. No, that's correct. <laughs> but, and, and then again, the only other time she really left home was when I think she was about 23. When. Oh, no, she, she also was briefly a teacher, uh, briefly a teacher. And that didn't work out because she hated the kids. <laughs> Again, yes, exactly right, because she's a very introverted person, wasn't she? And then at, at 23 or so, she goes to Brussels with Charlotte to learn more French. And, and learn German. how to run a school. and learn how to, That was their That plan. didn't work out for her either. <laughs> No, well, then the, their aunt died, and again, another death, and she uh, came back after, what, nine months or something, uh, and that was it. And her sister, um, Charlotte, later, you know, two years after she died, wrote a preface to the uh, second edition of Wuthering Heights and said she was very... She rarely left the house, and she rarely talked to people. She said she understood people, but she rarely talked to them. It's a very introverted and self-sufficient woman it was. And I, I thought that was really, really interesting, the kind of person she was, that how she, for this introversion, could produce such a book of imagination. But then flowing from that, from that uh, introspection is their love of books, their love of stories, their love of um, the Bible stories, the famous um, instance of the, uh, what was it, I think, 12 toy soldiers, uh, coming to the house when they were young and then uh, the children write these um, stories about the soldiers. They make up a fantasy land. They tell each other ghost stories. Uh, the brother, Branwell, who we can talk about later, that wasn't a who huge... Who drank leaf, himself to who death. Who drank himself to death at the pub around the corner from the parsonage. Um, they While, while they uh, had a narrow life, and again, this is, I think, what is so interesting about Emily and, and the Brontes, they had a narrow life, but they had a huge life of imagination and vision and thinking beyond the realms of where they lived. And as you say, um, Charlotte or Charlotte, as you mentioned, 
um, sort of almost in in the um, uh, prefaces to the later editions, almost explains Emily saying, well, she had a very narrow life, but she was really imaginative, and that sort of explains it. And then when you read the discussion about um, this girl with such a narrow life could do something as amazing as this, part of the argument is she could only do something amazing because um, she hadn't really been exposed to real life because a person exposed to the hurly-burly of real life without your mother dying when you were so young and your sisters dying when you were so young would actually try and make something more normal, more regular, more average. But she didn't, and it was because of the upbringing that she could do this amazing work of imagination. But don't forget, we've got to set it also in the cultural times, right? You have a look at the uh, the literary influences going around at that time. Now, the, the children read a lot. Um, Walter Scott, for instance. Byron, so, lots of Byron. Lots of Byron, the romantic hero who's living a life of isolation up in Switzerland or whatever and is redeemed only by the great love of, uh, of a woman. Uh, all that kind of stuff. And also Walter Scott, of course, was hugely popular. Uh, him with his, again, these heroes. And, uh, and, and, and also there was the nature thing. We're talking about uh, the early 19th century, um, you know, and Europe going through, having just gone through that trauma of uh, the war with France and all that kind of stuff. And so it's just woken to this new movement. I was, I was, I was re- uh, hearing, uh, reading that she'd also been influenced by Wordsworth and not the more uh, cultivated Wordsworth of later, but uh, the, uh, the Wordsworth of uh, the Lucy poems, for instance, and one poem in particular has such a resonance because it, it comes down to the final paragraph, too, of, of, of Wuthering Heights, which surely is the greatest or certainly one of the greatest final paragraphs of any novel in the English language. We'll come to that later. But the Wordsworth uh, poem that uh, really struck me was this. Uh, the, this Lucy poem is only short. I'll just read it. A slumber did my spirit seal. I had no human fears. She seemed a thing that could not feel the touch of earthly years. We're talking here about a poem of a genre of d- women dying early. Dying early and dying in the earth. It goes on. No motion has she now, no force she neither hears nor sees. Rolled round in earth's diurnal cur- course with rocks and stones and trees. And slumber, of course, is in that last paragraph of Wuthering Heights when you get the three graves. Um, so she's got all these influences Wuthering Heights, in the end, I don't think comes as such a surprise, although it did shock her own sister. Uh, when you put it that way, actually, it isn't a surprise because when you're brought up like that with these influences, maybe this is the sort of book um, that you would write. Um, and we'll talk about um, the story in a moment, but talking about nature uh, and romanticism, um, I was struck by by this section where she's um, Emily is um, writing about uh, Linton uh, and Catherine compares uh, Linton to Heathcliff. And I was thinking, you know, when you're comparing, and she's got, so Catherine has two potential boyfriends or two potential husbands. And we'll have she, to discuss yeah, the plot Well, in we'll a talk about the, the plot, plot in a moment, but she's, you know, she's comparing them. And, you know, I'm thinking today, how would you compare two different people? Like, you know, one likes going out, one likes staying home and watching TV. But Emily doesn't do this. So how does she compare these two potential husbands? She says... Uh, The contrast resembles what you see in exchanging a bleak, hilly coal country. So she's describing one bloke as a bleak, hilly coal country for a beautiful, fertile valley. 
and his voice and greeting were as opposite as his as his aspect. He had a slow, sweet, low manner of speaking and pronounced his words as you do. There's less gruff than we talk here and softer. So now how many people would, would compare two people by uh, a natural landscape? Well, in Cold fact, country. Street, one uh, later on describes uh, one as uh, the, a relationship based on the rocks and the other one to an autumn tree, the, the other... Oh, we're going to come to that because I want you or me to read that out because I reckon that's one of the great passages of, of romanticism. But, but this, that's one of the dual opposites. A, a, a clash in, sense, in, in essence between basic nature... And civilization. It's almost like Nietzsche before Nietzsche. Yes, yes. Right? Uh, what uh, side are you on? Uh, well, we'll come to that We're too. getting distracted <laughs> too. But I think one thing, uh, finally, uh, about Emily's life before we get on to the, before we uh, give the synopsis and talk about the book itself, um, it's, it's like what was Stephen Pinkner, uh, Pinker or something saying that, uh, you know, you don't get an expertise unless you do a thousand hours of something or whatever. They did it. She wrote all Malcolm her Gladwell. Life. Yeah, Malcolm Gladwell. Like 10,000 hours, yes. Yeah. Yes, 10,000 hours. Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, she wrote and wrote and wrote. And the two, the four youngest children, the surviving children, so she and Anne wrote the Gondol poems and, and books and stories and all that, all through their childhood. In fact, she did it, kept doing it until her, into her 20s. And the two eldest, that's Bramwell, the, the, the son, and, and, Char, uh, and Charlotte, they wrote... Uh, the Angrier series. Now, the Gondol series was about two islands in the Pacific and they went at war and all that. The writings were later destroyed, so we don't really know. There's only the poems left. Uh, but an act of imagination that was almost so real in her diaries, you know, she says, um, you know, the gondol, the gondols invaded whatever, you know, like it was one of the things that happened that day, you know. So she's always writing in these bleak wind, you know, these bleak, Islands in the Pacific where all these massive things happen. And then eventually Wuthering Heights. And the way Wuthering Heights comes up, Charlotte finds her diaries, uh, finds these wonderful poems by Emily um, and suggests that they, uh, they publish them. Now, Emily is furious at this invasion of her privacy. It takes ages for her to get talked around. But eventually the poems get published. They don't sell much. They sell well, two copies, I think. <laughs> they don't sell much <laughs> that's at all. not so good. That's, that's right. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. One of the poems um, of Emily's at 23 was, uh, she says, Riches I hold in light esteem and love I laugh to scorn and lust of fame was but a dream that vanished with the morn. Um, so, so always she's insular. But then the girls decide, let's go and write books. One wrote, uh, the youngest, Anne, wrote, uh, I've forgotten now. Uh, she, well, she wrote what her book is. Uh, Charlotte wrote uh, Jane Eyre. And Emily wrote Wuthering Heights. They all put them out uh, for to the publishers. Jane Eyre gets picked up pretty quickly, gets published, is a success. And the publisher that has the books of the other two sisters, including Wuthering Heights, thinks, oh, this might be a moneymaker for me. And finally, he publishes it. All the notices she gets are angry and, oh, my gosh, this is so disgusting. We're talking about a time when people would write the word damn, D-dash, right? <laughs> and suddenly there's this language being used, this violence, and she never got to see the reviews think, wow. But every review seemed to say, well, it's a horrible, but it's compulsive. I've got to read it, you know. So anyway, it took off. And there it is. That is the miracle of Wuthering Heights. 
Okay, cool. So we'll talk about the uh, book itself now. So that's some really cool background. So hopefully by now all of our listeners have read the book. And if you haven't, uh, I'm afraid you're about to have it spoiled for you. But basically, <laughs> but but you can, but the, you can know exactly what's happening. And you will still love it. Oh, I'm you will still it. love it. But listen, uh, so can we just, just say yeah. that at the end, nearly everyone dies? Oh, okay. Well, uh, there you go. <laughs> well, let's so, give it away. Yeah, <laughs> cut to the chase. <laughs> uh, uh, so, so people just tune out for a couple of minutes or fast forward the podcast because I'm going to give away the plot. I think we need to give away the plot. Yeah, Otherwise, we, yeah, a lot, it, yeah makes do you think? sense. I feel like all right. It's a bit lengthy because it's a complicated book, uh, essentially in two halves, two generations, uh, basically. It starts with the there's two narrators. This is all told through two narrators. The mass, the telling of it starts with a guy called Lockwood, who's the antithesis of the theory of the book. This is a guy that runs away from love, uh, who's introverted. It's um, just timid about love. He goes to visit Wuthering Heights. He's just rented out this property uh, down there called uh, um, Thrushcross Grove. And he goes up to the moors to visit the landowner, Lock, uh, uh, which is Heathcliff. He's forced by bad weather and the refusal of Heathcliff to set, give him uh, help to find his way back through the he snow. He gets attacked by Heathcliff's dogs. Attacked by Heathcliff's dogs. <laughs> That's find a good start. A completely dysfunctional family. <laughs> and Heathcliff lets him sleep in a room where he sees scrawl, you know, carved into the uh, lintel words like uh, Catherine, Heathcliff, and that kind of stuff. And he has a dream, or maybe he sees a ghost, and it's of Cathy. And she's banging at the window, let me in, let me in, and is terrified. Uh, Heathcliff comes bounding up, and you find Heathcliff saying, please come, because the dream has come to the wrong person. He says, come, come to me, come to me. He's begging the ghost to come to him, to haunt him, to drive him mad. Lockwood's looking around thinking, Lockwood's what's thinking, going what? on? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So Lockwood goes, he catches a death of cold nearly himself. He nearly dies too. He goes down back to uh, uh, Thrushcross Grove. And the housekeeper there, Nellie, then tells him, she's the main voice through all this. The voice of sanity almost. The voice of sanity, but she lets down, I mean, she's one of the causes of, in the turning point. I reckon she's... The whole tragedy. If they listened to Nellie, none of this would have happened. Yeah, but if Nellie had also told Cathy... Uh, that he uh, well, we'll get on to that in a second. Keep going, sorry. Yep. So Kathy then tells the tale of this family, and she tells how old Mister Earnshaw of Wuthering Heights had brought one day a dark-skinned boy from Liverpool, an orphan, found babbling in foreign languages in the street, back to Wuthering Heights. So found we've got him in this the beautiful mystery at the beginning. Who is he? Who is he? Who is he? And we. St- no he? one knows. No one knows. No one knows. Um, at one stage, uh, Nelly speculates that he might have been the son of a Japanese emperor, an Indian princess, or whatever. It might be a gypsy. Could be Mister Earnshaw's son, maybe. Who who knows? I doubt. Well, there's something strange about something him. strange. But Liverpool was a great trading, shipping centre, slaving, and all that. Who knows where he came from? He could come from anywhere. Anyway, so. Um, Son Hindley is really jealous. He bullies the boy mercilessly, in part because the father bringing home Heathcliff has destroyed the toy violin that he brought his son. But Cathy falls in love with him. They're children at this stage, right? Early, somewhat six, seven, eight, around that age. And when Mr. Earnshaw dies, Hindley then takes revenge on, Heath, uh, on uh, Heathcliff, treating him as a servant, 
denying him education, bullying him, making him almost like a cur. Catherine Heathcliff, they go close. One day they go down to Thrushcross Grove. And as you pointed out, John, there's the moors up there and there's this civilised little farmland down here. You know, nature, civilization. They spy on the family, the Linton family, and they there see Edgar and Isabella. And Catherine's bitten by the guard dog. She gets taken in by the repentant family, and she comes back weeks later, a little lady. Civilized. Civilized. This is the theme, isn't it? This is the theme. And uh, she agrees eventually. Uh, well, th- th- she still loves uh, Heathcliff, but he's mortified. He thinks she's rejecting him. And his pride is hurt. And he refuses to learn. She's learning faster than him. And he refuses out of stubborn pride to learn. Catherine agrees later to marry Edgar Linton because she's a very ambitious girl. Despite her love for Heathcliff, she thinks somehow she can have them both. Uh, she's very and, and she also marries Edgar to try and help Heathcliff to get some of Edgar's money. So she says. So she, so she says. Well, maybe it's true. She says what she could I do for Heathcliff. Uh, well, maybe that is true. But so the naivety there, it's a different kind of love, isn't it, that she has for the two men. But and, we'll, said, and we'll come to that too. Yes. Because that's but, a great division. Now, at one point, she's having, and this is, here's where the book turns. She's having the conversation with Nellie to explain why she's marrying Edgar rather than Heathcliff. She says she'd be degraded by marrying Heathcliff. Unknown to her, Heathcliff overhears this. And silently leaves the house. Nellie seizes, but does not tell Kathy. Kathy goes on to hear, and she and and uh, Heathcliff does not hear that she be- loves Heathcliff in a way she could never love Edgar. You're going to read out that bit, or should I? You read it out. Um, there's some wonderful passages about this. The the key one for me is, and this is uh, Kathy talking about Heathcliff. <clears throat> If all else perished and he remained, I should still continue to be. And if all else remained and he were annihilated, the universe would turn to a mighty stranger. I should not seem a part of it. My love for Linton is like the foliage in the woods. Time will change it, I'm well aware, as winter changes the trees. My love for Heathcliff resembles the eternal rocks beneath a source of little visible delight, but necessary. And here's the key bit. Nelly, I am Heathcliff. He's always, always in my mind, not as a pleasure any more than I am always a pleasure to myself, but as my own being. So don't talk of our separation again. It is impracticable and... No, I... I and, what, and, what, what, and how, you know, Heathcliff hears none of that. He hears none of that. He's gone. And that's it, isn't it? That's their love. I, I, uh, we'll get on to the love I am he- how This amazing is a very I important am, part. I am Heathcliff. He is, and that's, again, a theme throughout the book. I am him. He is me. We are together. We are always intertwined. But then she goes and marries Edgar anyway. <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, that's exactly right. I mean, it's very strange. And, and, and uh, elsewhere she says, he's more myself than I how am. How good is that? Yep. He's more myself than I am. And he, in turn, later on, uh, uh, it might have been... Uh, I can't remember which part of the book it's in, but he, he declares, I cannot live without my life. I cannot live without my soul. For, be, for both of them, the other is them. I mean, it's it's a really strange kind of love. It's a really, I don't know, They, it's like in the other, they're loving themselves. It's an annihilating love. 
But regardless, we'll get onto that later. But so, so this is the issue. He then disappears for three years, right? He disappears for three years. He comes back rich. Uh, well, that's very <laughs> mysterious, isn't it? He comes back rich. But it's never explained how, where he's been. And he also comes back cultured. He suddenly ta- got that learning in just three years. But anyway, he comes back, finds her married. And what's curious is it's not dwell time, but it's sort of like emerges. I, I would have thought a woman getting pregnant. That's a big, big, big thing. That's a life changer. But somehow uh, that's... Almost like an incidental. Because I know the baby and mother will probably die. Well, who knows? <laughs> uh, so he comes, uh, he, he comes back into their house. Now, uh, she is highly excited. This is a very destabilizing thing. Her husband is really annoyed. Edgar's very annoyed. Gee, I can't imagine why. I can't imagine <laughs> why. It's crazy stuff. Um, and uh, he... Uh, it, uh, and, and, but what neither of them quite realise at the time, Heathcliff has come back with revenge in his mind. He's been humiliated. This is a boy, don't forget, who suffered intense humiliation before and he is going to take revenge. And one of the things he does is marry Edgar's sister, Isabella, who falls in love with him for, and a lot of and you women You want to do. keep re- reading it, yelling out, Isabella, don't do it. This is, no, no. But she still does. Kathy says, Everyone don't do says, it. Everyone says, don't do it. But don't she does. Do it. In fact, Everyone she elopes knows about with Heathcliff. Well, they suspect about Heathcliff. And she, it takes not even one day for her yeah. to realise yeah. what a terrible, terrible mistake <laughs> she has made. But anyway, uh, by this time, Heathcliff's already bankrupted and, and turned uh, Hindley, Catherine's brother, into a, a complete wreck. He's gone back to live in Wuthering Heights with Heath, uh, Hindley, uh, gambles with him. Eventually, Hindley loses Wuthering Heights to him and drinks himself into an early death. Or like Emily's sick. brother. Like Emily's brother. Yeah, good point. Good point. So anyway, so Isabella's ruined. Isabella leaves, elope, uh, runs away, later has uh, gives birth to their son called Linton. Um, so Heathcliff's revealed now as a complete monster to us at any rate. He returns to the Grange after this to see Catherine again. The shock. He, he's been banned from the house. Catherine, Cathy goes on a hunger strike. Her husband for three days does not realise that. Can you believe that? For three days does not realise she's at death's door and blames Nelly for not telling on, him. They keep on locking each other and themselves into rooms all the time and never seeing each Isn't other. Isn't that weird? And servants come up and give them food. Please eat, please eat. No, I can't eat. I'd rather die. Anyway, Kathy dies just two hours after she gives birth to her daughter, also confusingly called Kathy or Catherine. Um, the second half of the novel is the, the revenge then completely works out. Um, Heathcliff gets his son Linton to come back forces him he's dying as well of consumption forces him to marry Cathy uh, to try to uh, uh, get the inheritance inheritance. of Thrush Grove transferred to Linton and there through him to uh, Heathcliff himself he actually kidnaps Catherine keeps her for days in the house until she agrees After to After everyone him. says to Catherine, don't go and see them. Don't go and, oh, no, I will go and see them. And you're yelling out, don't do it, don't do it. And again, Nellie says, don't go down there. So what does she do? She goes down there. Anyway, they marry. Linton dies. She's forced <laughs> to leave with Heathcliff. The father dies. And then this Heathcliff with his revenge that can't go anywhere else. And finally he drives himself mad and dies. And then in a really tacked-on kind of ending, I think, tell me what you think, 
there's a harmony. Catherine, the child of Cathy, and uh, Hareton, the one of the two figures that Heathcliff has ever shown real human care for, which is that's the son of Hindley, the man is destroyed, who he kind of thinks there was a son he wished he had. And the other one he likes is Nellie, the servant. They actually marry. Uh, one, uh, Catherine educates Hindley, has been kept in a brutish existence, not knowing anything, not even being able to read, by, by Heathcliff. They marry and all ends happily ever after. Yeah, a little bit of that all ends happily ever after, I think, strikes a discordant note. I think there's one but concession it, but it, to modern But it does, look, it does give us hope. And again, what I love about the happy ending, or almost happy ending, is it's fueled, of course, all of these conspiracy theories that Emily had finished a sequel, but Charlotte destroyed it out of jealousy. Uh, and, of course, there's even the wild stories about Charlotte uh, gradually poisoning Emily because of uh, the success of, of Emily. And, again, uh, while that is far-fetched, um, I think it's grounded in how Charlotte later on talked about Emily, which is sort of to defend her but then not defend her. And while um, the ending doesn't quite work, you think Everyone else has had a shocking life. I've had Everyone, I yeah. want something. Yeah. I want and a gleam yeah, in the I, darkness. Give, give me, give me something. Give me hope for redemption. But then again, coming back to civilization versus nature, does that mean that civilization wins? I guess it does, and I think I think this is important because the love I think that attracts so many readers, and I don't. I hope I'm not being sexist and thinking perhaps female readers in particular is one that a lot of us kind of may dream of, of being so totally obsessively loved, right? It's a bit teenage love, though, too. Uh, perhaps it is. Perhaps it is. But, but still good. But it's still an good. annihilating love because really it's a love of self. It is so obsessive, this love, that, and this is something that's sort of eliminated from some of the, or played down in the film versions because who wants to really represent that? Heathcliff actually twice digs up her body or a coffin. Once, just after she's been buried, he knocks off the top of Catherine's coffin, and the second time, 18 years later, he does it. He still hasn't got over And it. says that her features have not really been changed. I find that incredible. 18 years, <laughs> her features not have really... This is bizarre, this necrophilic, necrophilia. I mean, and it's such an... The thing is... They never make concessions to each other, Catherine and Heathcliff, because it's not a love of sharing and after you and excuse me. It's it's obsessive. It's, it's the two sides of the same coin almost. Well, well correct. Well, I mean, this is the point that I am you and you are me. Yes. And in fact, uh, Heathcliff declares at one stage, I hate you because you betrayed you, which by which he means me. That's right. But that, I, I, I am worried that I think we could be giving a misleading impression because we've spoken about Heathcliff and his love and his emotion I think we also have to acknowledge he's a psychopath I had to google the difference between sociopath and psychopath and I, I reading about it I saw that a sociopath is only slightly less bad than a psychopath um, Heathcliff uh, is violent in today's uh, world he would be in jail for the, for the worst domestic violence for the emotional abuse and all of that 
I think was um, you know, taken out of the films, and you know Lawrence Olivier doesn't come across as a as a psychopath. Um, it's so but, bad, but, it, it, but it is so exaggerated and so evil at times. But again, it sort of works because if he was any less bad, it wouldn't have have the emotional impact that it does. But you're thinking how this man is just well, like Byron, mad and. Bad and, and dangerous and, to know, and, and violent, and and Rex. Every so, why do women uh, fall in love with him? Well, let's see, talk this about is the that. point. Well, yeah. This is the point because uh, they're think, the same. Because uh, Catherine has a bit of that. Catherine has also been cruel at times and nasty at well, times. Well, that's the thing. This Not goes as back bad to the him. I am Heathcliff, yeah, or and you know, she is my soul. Um, when you think, I mean, she herself, she attacks Nelly at one stage. She. Um, Pinches her violently, leaving marks on her. That's right? a big. That's a good scene, isn't it? You can just imagine the, the slaps the, the her. Yep, she slaps her. She shakes Hareton when uh, he's a baby. She shakes him so violently that Nelly has to, you know, people are flocking to try and save him. Kin, Linton, the very cultivated, uh, uh, sorry, uh, uh, Edgar, Edgar, a very cultivated husband, or in that case, in this instance of suitor has come a courting when he tries to stop Catherine from slap you know from assaulting her brother she gives him a slap on the face I mean <laughs> in, in 19th century literature this is astonishing a woman slapping someone you think Edgar should have got a clue at that stage got a clue. so in a sense they're two they're, they're both the same right and I find this really amazing and as I say they regard each other the same. And a conventional love, and a love that lasts, that actually lives in the world, is one where you're not the same, where you're two halves of a whole. And Your the other halves. person makes you better. It compliments you, right? Uh, exactly right. And, and, and that's the love she actually has for Edgar. That's the real love. The, but like, he can, loves can, her. Can't he just adores be happy her. with Edgar? Just leave Heathcliff alone? Apparently not. She thinks she should have them both, and, and, and but I think it's that sense of danger and love, and but the oh, obsession the that sense of people danger. flirt with. But if you actually had it, it'd kill you, it and yet does. people are flirting with it. I think that's what's coming out. And and um, the the discussions between, and I, you shouldn't call them discussions. The 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 um, the pleadings and the sobbings between uh, Heathcliff and Catherine on Catherine's deathbed. So. Everyone knows Catherine's just a few hours away from death, and Heathcliff turns up, and then and then he doesn't care. Yeah, he doesn't he care. Doesn't and care then, that and, then, he's and then, kill he rubs, her. then he rubs it in. You teach me now how cruel you have been, cruel and false. Why did you despise me? Why did you betray your own heart? So she's hours away from death, and he's still rubbing it in. And he calls I, her I, his, I, you, his yeah, murderer. I, you betrayed you, yourself and me, Kathy. I have not one word of comfort. <laughs> you deserve this. Yes, and later on he calls. You deserve uh, this. You're about to die. You deserve this. He calls her his his murderer. You have killed himself. You have killed yourself. Yes, you may kiss me and cry and wring out my kisses and tears. They'll blight you. They'll damn you. You loved me. Then what right had you to leave me? So then it goes all about me. Then why did you leave me? That's because again they are the same, as opposed to a love of. And then he keeps on going. What right? Answer me. Answer me for the poor fancy you felt for Linton. So. you know, reading it now, you think, wow, and you think, could this really happen? But it sort of could. Well, so. 
As I say, yeah. there they go. You know, do I want to live? What kind of living will it be when you, oh God, would you like to live with your soul in the grave? And then Kathy says, leave me alone, leave me alone. And he keeps on rubbing it in and then she dies. Do you know, and it's a weird love, it's never consummated, at least as far as we can We suspect tell. not. We yeah. suspect not. I mean, it's it doesn't seem, I'm sure she would have written it had it been, but it's not consummated. It is, it is above sex or maybe it's before sex. It's... It's not about the other as a sexual partner. There's no context of I wish I'd had a child by you or anything like that. It is just something extremely different. And, you know, I want to go back to things that you've mentioned before and we've talked about where so you've got Wuthering Heights, which is where Heathcliff comes from. He's described as satanic of the earth, of the rocks. It's up there in the rocks or in the moors. Uh, the civilization, the civilized love of Edgar is down in the farm, man-made sort of thing. It's all civilization and manners. Controlled, mannered. Well, Nietzsche uh, uh, was born about four years before uh, before uh, Bronte died, and he later developed all this sort of stuff, which is talking about you know this idea of man being corrupted by civilization, that the real us is being buried and and smothered in these rules and these uh, conventions. Very Rousseau and, too, isn't it? It's, very, yeah. Yes, it, it, well, but, 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 but more elemental. Yeah, but on that, okay, so without civilization, you get Heathcliff walking around wielding knives. You get... Uh, and digging uh, up bodies. You know, exactly. So isn't civilization good? Yes, but we are intoxicated with that idea of the, the real us, the, you know, frustrated by these so rules. Would you rather be the, Ed, the or Heathcliff? I know, but people sometimes. I mean, You're that's sounding what, romantic. Why, why do some? Why do some people oh. <laughs> like taking, uh, uh, getting a bit drunk, losing their inhibitions, and throwing cautions to the wind, and just, you know, that's the whole thing. We love the real elemental side of ourselves, but without the rules and conventions, yep, there is no what, real yep. life. It's an internal tension, and this book puts a stick of dynamite in it. Although it does come back at the and, end. And, and again, what is nice about the book is Emily lets us decide. And so while she, as I've said, paints Heathcliff as this psychopath and Edgar as this nice, cultured, mannered, um, sophisticated person who for all of her faults still loves Catherine, if you had to decide whose side does Emily come down on, it's not clear which, and what I fear is Emily might come down on the side of Heathcliff. Well, don't forget, though, Emily had never had, apart from the love of her family, uh, there's no record, although of records are very love. few, of ever knowing a real <laughs> yeah. love or ever having to be in a relationship. So where, heaven forbid she thinks this is what a relationship is like. <laughs> well, she didn't even really. I mean, seeing her that her mother died when she was just three, she never even saw it in real life because none of her sisters married. Her brother didn't marry. Her father, for all we know... You know well, oh, and she, she never... saw her... When they were in Brussels, she saw her um, sister uh, allegedly fall in love with the master of the school and you know that was all a disaster. But Well, but they didn't live together. They didn't live together. So, the... so maybe she thinks this is what normal relationships are. Well, not necessarily that. She probably didn't... Well, in a sense, she see You know, in, in Edgar Linton... Uh, his love for Catherine, which is not reciprocated in kind, is a real love. He makes endless sacrifices. He loves her to bits, forgives her transgressions, indulges her whims, which is, in a sense, a real love, and yet he's treated rather abominably. So why do we, so 
you, you make a good point. So we always go on correctly about Heathcliff's love for Catherine. No one ever talks about, well, Edgar was pretty selfless. Edgar looked after her. Edgar knew of all of her issues and yet he still stuck by her to the very end. And then um, talking about death, there's a scene after um, Catherine dies in childbirth and you know, Edgar's lying on the bed next to the, the body of his dead wife. I know. How come Edgar's not the hero? Well, in real life he probably would be, but the, Edgar's, I, the, I poor, think this is Edgar's the, the poor sap that you know everyone takes for granted. I don't think many readers really care about Edgar, even though I know that's exactly what you say. Yeah, I'm just I'm I'm warming to Edgar, uh, Isabella, Ed, Edgar's sister, who marries Heathcliff, as we've talked about. Um, she had a shocking time. Um, I'm I'm going to barrack for Edgar and Isabella. It's interesting. A lot of reviewers picked up on how beautifully the story is told logically, right? And it works, doesn't it? It really works. First, the voice of Lockwood, who doesn't really know life himself, is exactly the kind of creature that this book seemed to be aimed at with a big blunderbuss pointed at his forehead, you know? Because he says at the very beginning, he, he was admiring someone, this boarding house somewhere or this uh, pleasure place, and the woman thought, oh, I, he seems to love me. She started to return his love, and he froze, turned like ice, treated like dirt, made her doubt her own, and she had to flee, and he's come to flee in this remote Yorkshire town. I mean, he's it's, it's exactly the opposite, exactly the opposite of Heathcliff, a dandy kind of thing. And he tells part of this story, but then most of it's actually in the voice of Nellie Dean. And the way the very various narratives, then his voice comes back, then Nellie comes back, it's all masterly. You, it's it's just of a, of a very skilled, isn't very it? Very so, skilled. I mean, we, in time and, and again, place, shifting times. The, the, the book works not just because of all the emotion that we've talked about, but technically um, it is very accomplished. You can follow it. It maintains the tension. It's a page turner because you never know when someone's about to draw a knife. Or It's almost like it's been a serialised novel. You know? Well, exactly. And come back next week. Yeah. For, but, but one thing I don't think many – there is one artifice here that I think is fairly obvious. It is beautifully written, right? Beautifully written. The command of language is, is fantastic. The fra- I mean, you've read out some of the phrases of love. It's just beautifully done. And we're supposed to have all this narrated to us by a servant. Yeah. <laughs> really? Really? And, you know, like nearly, nearly sort of excuses this or – Actually, Emily Bronte excuses by saying, well, look, uh, she's been a servant down at Thrushcross uh, Grange, which has got a wonderful library, and she's read every book in the library except the ones in foreign languages. And so she's obviously picked up this learning, but it's improbably well narrated for a servant, to be honest, though servant of those times. But uh, the, the, put that to one side, very educated voice, but who, the, who cares? It is just beautifully, beautifully told. And, well, you know, it, it's like, it's by a poet. It is really is by a poet. And not that I'm into poetry and trying to prepare for the podcast today. I tried to struggle through some of Emily's and, and, and Charlotte's poetry. And ended but, up listening to a Kate Bush song. Uh, <laughs> I copped out. But it, it, you, you realise maybe if someone didn't know poetry and didn't know Byron and didn't know the Psalms, they, they, couldn't, they couldn't do this. I think that's right. It really is set in a cultural milieu that uh, for most people now is, that's gone. I mean, Christianity is almost gone, let alone that kind of Christianity. 
that kind of writing is gone too. Uh, Walter Scott, I don't think people even open his books now, although... Uh, yeah, Mark Twain did great damage to Walter Scott. I won't forgive Mark Twain for that. Well, you know, don't forget to, you know, Yorkshire is not that far south of uh, Scotland and Walter Scott had actually almost single-handedly created that whole love of Scottish, Scottishness and the bringing back of the kilts and all that kind of, of, of tartan rather, all that kind of, he was a huge influence uh, back then. But anyway, but the love, the, the poetry uh, comes through, um, in the final paragraph, do you think I should read it out? I think you should. This is the poetry, and I read earlier uh, that uh, Lucy poem of Wordsworth, about, you know, which ends about a body lying among the rocks and all that kind of thing. This whole idea of you know, bedded in nature, nature is where we should be as opposed to civilization, the moors rather than the farms, all that kind of stuff. Um, the ghosts are in this book, the ghosts of Cathy, People, uh, reports of villagers seeing ghosts and of Cathy and Heathcliff and all that kind of stuff. Lockwood, the narrator, doubts it. Now, some people say, well, Lockwood is such an unimaginative, civilised guy, you know, ghosts uh, would be foreign to him. And he narrates the final paragraph. People think, how silly of him to actually make this conclusion. I think the conclusion is real because Cathy and Heathcliff both declare during the book, we won't rest until we're together. Heathcliff even prepares their resting under the earth together. He knocks off the side of Cathy's coffin under the earth so that when he's buried next to her, which he stipulates and is done, his side will also have the side towards her knocked off so they can be together, right? So I think this paragraph, and I'll read it out, is real, emotionally real, and it is, as I said, one of the most beautiful in, the Eng in English literature the final, as a final paragraph. This is Lockwood walking back from... Uh, Wuthering Heights, having discovered there's a happy ever after where the uh, final two children are, are married and in bliss, I sought and soon discovered the three headstones on the slope next to the moor, the middle one grey and half buried in the heath, Edgar Linton's only harmonised by the turf and moss creeping up its foot, Heathcliff's still bare. I lingered round them under that benign sky, Watch the moths fluttering among the heath and harebells. Listen to the soft wind breathing through the grass. And wondered how anyone could ever imagine unquiet slumbers for the sleepers in that quiet earth. I think that's just so powerful. Okay, Poetry. very cool. Uh, so, great discussion about the book. And my credit to some questions that people have sent. Don't in. wreck the moment, James. <laughs> But it's pretty it, good, isn't it? It's yeah. very good. Yeah. We've got to keep this podcast moving, though. So we're already down <laughs> 50 minutes. Uh, so this Kirsten came in a few different ways, but uh, I think, John, you've already offered your one, but are there any characters you are, you think are truly likeable or sympathetic or that you really <laughs> want to succeed? But there are two. It's funny. <laughs> I think um, Charlotte uh, mentioned this in the preface. I think it was the preface to the second edition uh, when she cleaned up some of the Yorkshire dialect of the servant uh, there's an elderly servant that is still, even though she cleaned up the dialect, I, I still have very no idea hard what Joseph read. is talking about. Yorkshire yeah. dialect, anyway. Um, she said that uh, Heathcliff, the only time that he actually has a human emotion would be when he's in, uh, having discussions with Hareton, the uh, young boy that he's tried to brutalise, but turns out there is something in him. It, it, it's, it's, in fact, like Heathcliff himself, but the nicer Heathcliff, the civilised one, the one that loves, and also with Nellie, 
He has nice. He, he actually seems to like Nelly whenever he sees this servant. That's the only kind of <laughs> time you see it. What do you think? No, there are a couple of normal uh, characters in in the book, uh, Edgar and Isabella, that we've we've talked about. I, I think Nelly is a terrific. Uh, character, she's the one who understands no good is going to come out of nearly anything that Catherine and and Heathcliff uh, do, and again it it works. Um, the the distinction between uh, and we've spoken about Heathcliff, uh, but we have to we haven't really spoken about um, uh, Hindley, uh, the the brother of of, of Catherine. Catherine, who is nearly as bad as as Heathcliff. Um, I think oh, he's a conventional bully. He's a conventional bully, but then he... he, he His own wife dies he, early and he, too and he, and he, and he goes to he threatens nuts. Nelly with a knife and sticks it in her mouth and then <laughs> uh, and then Nelly, um, as, as calm as a cucumber, basically says, put that down and don't be stupid. Um, so there are a couple of um, nice characters in it, but... Um, uh, there's not that many. Yeah, but no, Edgar's nice too. Edgar and, 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 yeah, I, I, and, 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 but the Edgar. point is, people don't like yeah, nice. I mean, we know, if the book had been called you know, niceness. Ed, Ed, Edgar's Life, I don't think it would be anywhere near as successful. Okay, very cool. And the last question we have time for. So is this to you guys a story about love or revenge, if you had to pick one? Oh, all of, all of the... Above, I think if Gotta you pick were, one, John. no, no, if you were to say he's intent on revenge over decades because he loved her, is to diminish the love and to excuse it. I would argue that I think this is deeper than love because I don't think that's a healthy love. I think it is actually. More, a bit more spiritual and a bit more existential and a bit more romantic and it goes to the topics we've raised which connect to they are one and the same. They are what, what is it to be uh, alive and of course people have talked about um, Emily's belief that uh, in, in um, discussion of ghosts and the idea that when you're born someone else somewhere else, somewhere else in the world uh, is is born like you and you live together and you die together I actually don't think it is love between Heathcliff and Catherine love is actually about being complimentary to someone and making them better. And in an ideal world, love is not about being selfish. It's not about you. It's about the other person. And again, they're the, they're the one and the same. So it's not about love. It's about something bigger. Well, I, I think it is about love, but, but love doesn't exist on its own. Love is embedded in human beings and how, what kind of loves they choose and what, what the price is when... Love is taken away or betrayed, and what it does to people is just set in. Very, don't forget, there are sort of three central love affairs or natures, sorts of love that are described in this book. Kathy and Heathcliff, where you're right, it's about this is that obsessive. Love? Is that it is love? a kind of, love, but it's a self-love, I think. Self-love. Yes. It is a self-love. Yes, yes, it's all about. Yes. Then that's there's. Right. Uh, Kathy and Edgar. Which is pretty normal. Well, it's not because only half of it is normal. <laughs> Edgar's <laughs> yeah. half. Yeah, that's right. Kathy <laughs> is still Kathy. Yeah. And she's looking for a different love, that annihilating love. 
And at the end of the book, finally we get to a proper love, which is between their children, or the children of uh, Kathy's child, Catherine, and Hareton, which is a proper love, a reciprocated love. So why do, we, why do you call it a proper love? love? Well, uh, Kath, Stereotypical, Catherine, conventional Catherine is love. enough of a mother to treat Hareton originally quite meanly. Yes, yes. Uh, she's very headstrong, a lot of spirit. But then comes to, she's a generous soul, and she decides to teach Hareton to read and write um, and falls in love with him and is a real love. She is looking after him. She is loving him. He is adoring her from the start. He's mortified. He forgives her for all the taunts she's done. He is a very strong, wonderful character. And they ha- this blossoms into real love. So we go from a love of two people loving themselves, essentially, an obsessive love and a destructive one, next to one where one half has got a real love and the other is obsessive and still looking for something that will kill. And then finally, the coda, which is two loves, mutual love, not self-love. Which one do we go for? One exists, one you can, you, you can live in this world. The other one, you will realise heights that you never imagine, that you can only dream of, but it will kill you. So do you follow your head or your heart? Why do so many people t- take drugs when they know it will probably kill them? They look for that high. And sometimes you think the highs, the are highs, the highs are what you're worth after. It? You know, you have, to, you have to say to Catherine, okay, so for all of the issues that Heathcliff caused you, was it worth it? And the problem is Catherine might say yes. Why do some people still love Heathcliff? You know, it's, it's, whether, know, it's, it's what people fair. look for life. Some people want the heights and some people want the distance. These days you'd call it a, uh, a novel of destructive relationships. And yet there was that love and that's what people are looking for. Absolutely. All right. That concludes this week's episode of The Great Books of Literature. I hope you guys really enjoyed that discussion. In about two weeks' time, we're going to be releasing Zorba the Greek. So I hope you guys are looking forward to that. Thank you to John and Andrew, and we'll see you next time.